This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 246, Signs. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Signs are everywhere, from giant words in the sky to the fuzzy green stuff in your refrigerator. God gives you signs too. Ignore them at your peril. This week we'll cover the greatest sign Jesus ever performed and why people completely missed it, three authors' idea about how dense people can be in the presence of absolute proof, the road signs that bring out either the humility or the selfishness in all of us, and the longest thousand-mile road trip in the history of gaming. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Consider the Temple of Solomon for a moment. According to 1 Kings 6-7, even the sound of hammering was considered irreverent while it was being constructed. Then flash forward to the day Jesus entered the temple, as recorded in John 2, verses 13 through 22. By then, the temple had taken on significance far beyond what was originally intended. Besides the basic holy place and most holy place, various courtyards had been added, in which various worship-adjacent activities took place. Roman money had Caesar's face imprinted. The Jews believed that to be a violation of the commandment against graven images, and therefore it had to be exchanged for Jewish money if visitors were to pay the temple tax. And, of course, the temple officials earned a profit there. Animals were provided for travelers who found it inconvenient to bring their own. And, of course, the temple officials earned a profit there as well. Can you just imagine the scene, the sounds, the sights, the smells? It stank, in every sense of the word. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. He took the conventional way of looking at the temple and turned it on its head. This was not worship. This was an abomination. This was not spiritual leadership. This was exploitation and carnality. This was not God's house. It was a house of merchandise. No doubt he was seen as the enemy, even as a heretic, when he overthrew the existing order. But Jesus was exactly the opposite. He was the one who truly cared about God's house. He was the one who respected his heritage. Later, his disciples remembered this scene and connected it with Psalm 69.9, Zeal for your house will consume me. These were the acts of a prophet, very much in keeping with the tradition of great ones such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. So the people naturally wanted to see a sign so they could believe in his work as a prophet. And the sign Jesus provided caused even more confusion than his behavior. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. In the moment, it must have seemed as though Jesus was saying he could build a better temple, one that would serve God's true purposes and do it all in just three days. And in fact, that's exactly what he was saying. The kingdom he planned to implement after his resurrection would be fundamentally different than anything made by men. This kingdom, which is called a temple in 2 Corinthians 6.16, would be where true spiritual sacrifices would be made. His followers were described as being both stones in its construction, 1 Peter 2.4, and priests ministering in its service, Revelation 1.6. And it would be accomplished just three days after the movers and shakers of the day did their very best to stop Jesus' plan in its tracks. True, the fullness of the Spirit and the gospel had not been delivered in our eyes. But in the plan of God, The resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate sign of his success. We sometimes talk about the glory days, whether they be days from our own past or days of prior generations. For the Jews, certainly the glory days would have been the days of David and Solomon. 
First century Jews eagerly anticipated the kingdom of promise, the fulfillment of passages such as Daniel 2.44. The kingdom of heaven, as it was often styled, an expression often used in Matthew's gospel, would be the continuation and culmination of all the promises God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And surely the temple would be at the center of it all. Malachi 3.1 reads, quote, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies, end quote. Surely this passage came to mind for some observers three years after the events of John 2, when Jesus entered into the temple for the final time with a triumphal procession in tow. The Lord of armies was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors and establish his true kingdom. But Jesus had no intention of simply making better use of existing structures and systems. He was tearing it all down and replacing it. And in reality, this is the true throwback. When Solomon built the true temple, the Shekinah glory inhabited the building in the same way it had inhabited the tabernacle in the wilderness. 2 Chronicles 5.14 describes it as a cloud that forced the priests to evacuate. God took up residence in that building in a way unlike anything that happened in the days of Zerubbabel or Herod. God was truly with his people. But even that temple paled in comparison to the temple of the body of the Lord. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 Jesus was and is the sign. He himself in the life that he lived among us, and especially in the life he now lives as the resurrected King of Kings. Our job is to see him, to recognize him, and to follow him. This is what I've been reading. I don't spend a lot of time in the science fiction section of the bookstore. I mentioned that in the sci-fi episode a few weeks ago. But there I was one day a few months ago, and I stumbled on a book entitled The Day the Sun Stood Still. Immediately, my thoughts went to the story in Joshua chapter 10, in which Joshua and the Israelites needed more than the conventional number of hours to fully defeat their enemies. And God caused the sun to stand still in the sky for what verse 13 calls almost a full day. Of course, this is one of the go-to passages for those who want to attack the credibility of the Bible. The so-called inspired word of God says the sun revolves around the earth, whereas we know today it's the other way around. Therefore, the Bible has factual errors. Therefore, I don't have to read the Bible. The sheer number of factual errors and logical leaps in that brief statement is astonishing, but let's start with the basics. The Bible does not say the sun revolves around the earth. Joshua 10.13 says the sun was stopped in the middle of the sky. We use that kind of language all the time. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and so forth. It's accommodative language, one of our most frequently used figures of speech. If you want to say Joshua believed the earth was the physical center of the universe and that he was wrong about that, I won't argue with you. You're very likely right. So what? Joshua was not a scientist, and his book was not written so we could understand the laws of the physical universe more accurately. He's telling a story. And he's telling it the same way you and I tell stories every day. Move on. In a broader sense, we need to break ourselves of the obligation placed on us by our opponents to prove every so-called fact given to us in the Bible. Jesus was always willing to entertain good faith questions asked by his neighbors, and even by his opponents. 
but when they showed they had no real interest in hearing his message, the signs were cut off. Only the sign of Jonah would remain for such ones, he said in Matthew 12.39. If the resurrection would not turn their heads, there's no point in continuing the conversation. And that brings me to The Day the Sun Stood Still. The book essentially is three short stories written by three science fiction writers, Paul Anderson, Gordon P. Dixon, and Robert Silverberg, all addressing the same scenario. What if God caused the sun to stand still today? Naturally, when I realized the book was, as I did not dare to hope, actually a comment on Joshua 10.13, I grabbed it. And cutting to the chase, essentially all three authors wound up taking the same position. The sign really wouldn't make that much difference. Perhaps a few people would be motivated, at least in the short term, to give religion a new look. But mostly, believers were emboldened in their belief, and unbelievers were emboldened in their myopic rebellion. I've always said that would be the case if the situation were to ever occur. Certainly, the Bible backs that position up time and time again. The Pharisees saw the risen Lazarus and would rather have plotted to send him back to the grave than believe in the one who raised him. Scoffers heard the voice of the Father sound out from heaven in support of his Son, and they all heard in their own minds just a clap of thunder. Haters gonna hate. No sign will persuade someone determined not to be persuaded. Don't fall into the trap of believing evangelism somehow works better with genuine miracles. The power of salvation is in the gospel itself, Romans 1.16, not in the way it's presented. And for that matter, various miracle workers have arisen at various times and opposed God's message. Moses warned of such ones in Deuteronomy 13.1-4. We have the word of God preserved providentially for us in the Bible. That's the only sign we need, and the only sign a sinful world needs. This is what I've been hearing. If you're a driver, you've been there. Two lanes become one lane. Usually you've known for a mile or more that it was going to happen, at least you were given signs to that effect, which you and your neighbors may or may not have noticed. And eventually the blacktop is cut off by a series of pylons and barricades. And now the potential and hypothetical has become the real. Two cars, but only enough space on the road for one. It's time to merge. Most of us seem to take the process very much in stride. Some call it the zipper merge. One car from the left, one car from the right, another from the left, and so on. It's reasonable, it's orderly, it's spreading the inconvenience equally among all the drivers. No one's happy, but everyone's satisfied. Well, not quite everyone. Some drivers didn't get the memo about the zipper. They see themselves as next in line, and they determine it is their time to go. So they just go. The other guy can just deal with it. And that creates a second category of disgruntled would-be mergers those who feel, rightly or wrongly, that they have been cut off. Horns are blown, voices are raised, vulgarities are shouted, and the world becomes just a little bit uglier for all of us. All because someone stalled in traffic 50 feet behind where he or she feels they are entitled to be. They'll get to their destination half a second later than they would have otherwise. Someone got the better of them in the traffic war. Let's go over some basics. Driving is a privilege, not a right. It's extended under certain conditions, and it can be withdrawn under certain conditions. Circumstances will never be perfect, and they will often be downright objectionable. 
you will be constantly subjected to rules that make no sense, alterations that seem counterintuitive, people who abuse their driving privileges egregiously. None of these things, nor all of them put together, mean the system is breaking down. It certainly doesn't mean the world's out to get you. Trust me, you're not nearly that important. No, it just means the system is fluid and imperfect. And it's being implemented and utilized by imperfect people. And you're one of those imperfect people, by the way. 99 times out of 100, the best thing to do is simply do the best you can. Read the signs so as to anticipate changing circumstances. And work patiently with the poor slobs who are in the same mess you are. Here's the thing, though. This system basically guarantees you will not get your way from time to time. You'll have to merge, or yield, or even stop. And in that moment, you may not be inclined to consider the needs and wishes of others. You may just resent being asked to surrender your advantage. You may even choose not to surrender it at all. You just hit the gas and keep on going. If you do, you'll likely get away with it. Although, considering all the road rage videos I see on YouTube these days, I'm not sure I'd take that for granted. But even if you do get away with it, you're roiling the pot a little bit more. Think about that the next time someone yells at you for no good reason. Maybe you're the reason, or at least some small part of it. It takes humility to merge, both in traffic and in life. It takes sympathy and consideration. For Christians who believe the center of the universe is Jesus and therefore could not possibly be themselves, it should be a natural process, an opportunity to show the things Jesus is working in us. The meek and lowly one is helping you become meek and lowly too. And you should want to demonstrate that, even if it means the bad guys get to win once in a while. All the signs are there. They've been there for centuries. Jesus told us we would have to be submissive. And he told us others would take advantage of us when we are. After all, no one suffered in that way more than Jesus himself. And as 1 Peter 2, 21-23 tells us, he did it without complaint. If he endured insults and injustice without lashing out, you should welcome the chance to do the same. If someone wants to merge, let them merge. Don't fuss at them if it isn't their turn, either vocally or just in your head. Rejoice at the privilege of living your life under God's Son. You will get to your ultimate destination soon enough. You might as well get there with a smile on your face. This is what I've been playing. One of the very first games Tracy and I played together was Millborns, a simple card game in which you're trying to be the first to complete a thousand-mile journey. You have a deck of cards. Most of them are miles cards, and they let you travel the designated distance. Some are hazard cards, flat tires, accidents, out of gas. Some are speed limit cards, which keep you from driving more than 50 miles at a time. Some are remedy cards, which erase the disadvantages of the hazards and speed limits. Some are advantage cards that exempt you from the hazards entirely. And some are simply green lights and red lights. The idea is to get a green light and then go as far and as fast as you can before your opponent sidelines you. Finding the appropriate remedy can be a hassle. And even if you do find it, you have to get another green light to start moving again. Fair warning. If you're not too secure in your relationship with your gaming partner, you shouldn't play Millborns, especially two-player. If your opponent draws a hazard card, he'll play it on you. That's the way the game works. And if you're spinning your wheels, as it were, looking for a green light, he's spending all that time collecting even more hazards to play on you. Three-player is even worse, 
since the two hindmost drivers will certainly gang up on the leader. Basically, I'm saying I don't like the game anymore. I've come to realize there are plenty of simple card games that do not consist mostly of one player beating up on another player. And I don't much care for the idea of sitting in one place while the whole world passes me by, knowing my ability to get back on the road is completely out of my control. And that once I finally get back on the road, that will likely just result in me getting shoved in the ditch once again. But hey, you do you. Millborns is easy, cheap, and available pretty much anywhere you buy games. It's better than watching the Kardashians anyway. I hope this short description has not caused you to have flashbacks to the way you were reared especially the way you were taught the gospel. Sometimes life in Jesus can feel like nothing but starting and stopping, starting and stopping. You get a notion of what you might want to do with your life, something a lot of people seem to enjoy, and out comes the stop sign. Mom and dad won't put gas in your car because you want to go to drinking parties or whatever. They say they're trying to keep you safe, that they and God know what's best for you. But from the standpoint of the would-be driver with his car up on blocks in the garage, it can be tough to find the joy. So what's the solution? Eliminate all hazards and let people do whatever they want? I sure don't want to be on that road, and I don't think you do either. No, we have to apply the brakes from time to time. And sometimes, because of ignorance or rebellion, others have to apply the brakes for us. But if all that accomplishes is making people's lives miserable, we haven't done anyone any favors, including ourselves. Living a life of responsibility, self-discipline, and cooperation in Jesus is a wonderful thing. No, it's not the same thing as doing whatever you want to do. And in the moment, especially for the immature, it's the opposite of what may seem wonderful. But Jesus really does want us to get on the road and drive. He wants us to revel in the experience. But he wants us to get to where he is taking us. And that's where he is, in the presence of the Heavenly Father himself. And by the very nature of things, we don't know where that is, let alone how to get there. Thomas speaks for all of us in John 14, 5, when he says, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And apart from Jesus, we can't. But by embracing him as the giver of all directions, the way, the truth, and the life, by telling him to take the wheel, essentially, and apologies for the country music reference there, we have absolute confidence in our ultimate success. No barrier can arise. No personal failure can flatten our tires. We have arrived at our destination the moment we venture out onto the road. As we read in 1 John 5.13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. As long as Jesus is truly the Lord of your life, you have his promise that you will finish a journey and receive the prize waiting for you there. Just follow his lead. Go where he says go. Stop where he says stop. No backseat driving. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.